Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in European Studies. I am Liz Spragans, a host of the channel and currently assistant professor of Spanish at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. And today we're going to be talking to Chad Leahy and Ken Tully about their new book, Jerusalem Afflicted, Quaresmia, Spain, and the Idea of a 17th Century Crusade. Chad is Assistant Professor of Spanish, Early Modern and Medieval Spanish Cultural Studies at the University of Denver, and his work focuses on the intersection of religion, politics, gender, and race in the cultures of early modern Spain and medieval Iberia. He's particularly interested in the place of Jerusalem in the historical invention of Spain. He's published on these themes in venues such as the Bulletin of Hispanic, uh, excuse me, the Bulletin of Spanish Studies, Cervantes, Hispanic Review, and Romance Notes, among a number of others. And meanwhile, Ken Tully is currently a graduate student at Oxford University at the Faculty of Theology and Religion. He just received an MA from Villanova in 2019 and has stayed on there as adjunct faculty while he completes his DPhil at Oxford. He teaches subjects such as Homer's Iliad, Patristics, Attic Orators, uh, New Testament Greek, and Advanced Classical Greek. And his dissertation subject is the Abertius Inscription, a Christian second century epigraph, and its associated hagiography. Chad and Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. So just to keep going in alphabetical order, um, Chad, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, where you went to school, how you became interested in early modern Iberian history, whether you had some important mentor other than our shared one, Paco Lina at Middlebury, whatever you want to tell us. Sure. Um, so first off, thanks so much for having us um, for this interview, and uh, it's a great honor. Uh, a little about myself. I'm from, originally from Massachusetts, uh, Western Mass, and uh, I went to undergrad at, at Boston University. So Stuck around the Northeast for a while. Um, I did my PhD at Brown, and um, I studied there with Antonio Carreño, um, who's, a, who's a great lopista. Um, and uh, during my undergraduate time abroad, um, I studied abroad in, in Ecuador and also Spain. Th- that's that's when I met Paco. So I, I think if I had to acknowledge mentors, Paco would be would be on the list for sure. Um, I think that his his seminar on the Quixote was pretty transformative for me. Um, so thanks, Paco. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, also as a model for, for pedagogy, I think that I really learned a lot about teaching from him. So that's another yeah. um, another thing to, to acknowledge. Um, my, my interest in early modern, frankly, I, I really, not to harp too much on Paco, but I, I really did, um, I began at, at, uh, at BU as a music education major, and I had intended to be a voice teacher. Um, and I had really missed Spanish, which I did a lot of in high school. Um, 
when I was at BU. So I, I, um, I decided to go abroad, uh, took that Quixote class, Paco mentioned graduate school as a thing. And I really had never thought about that as a, as a trajectory for my life. But after returning from Spain, um, I plunged into a Spanish, uh, Hispanic studies, um, Hispanic literature, language and literature major. And, um, and I guess the rest is sort of history. So I worked, uh, at BU with, with Jimmy Flynn, who I would say is another important main, uh, mentor for me. Um, and, uh, I wrote an undergraduate thesis on the, on the work of Cervantes. I remember very, like, very transformative as well. He, I went into <laughs> to Flynn's office and he said, I was, he was like, what, what are you going to work on? And I said, Oh, the Quixote. And he's like, well, how about you read, why don't you read all of Cervantes first? <laughs> and then we'll talk about what you want to do. So I read the Persiles and the Galatea and all the theater. And in retrospect, like, I think if I had asked my undergraduate, my undergraduates now to do that, maybe, maybe some of them would have, but I, I don't know. I, I, I was, I'm really grateful for the challenge that it was for me because I learned a lot from the experience. Um, and I think that that's largely why I ended up doing early modern. It's just that I, I found it to be a fascinating world that I wanted to learn more about. So, um, so I ended up at Brown, um, and my first gig out of grad school was at Villanova, where, curiously, Ken, Ken is also has associations with Villanova. I didn't know Ken when, he, when I was in Pennsylvania, but I was at Villanova for six years, and um, I audited a class with one of Ken's professors, um, and so that's, that's the origin story of how we got into contact, because when I was working on this book, I, I wrote, I wrote to her and said, uh, do you, you want to collaborate with me? And she said, um, no, I'm really busy. You should talk to Ken. So that, that's where that came from. But, um, yeah, I was, I was at Villanova for six years, uh, on a non-tenure track position. And then I got a, got a job at the university of Denver where I've been for another six years, I think. And I am going up for tenure as we speak. In fact, tomorrow is the deadline to submit all my final materials for the department committee. So fingers crossed, I guess we'll see what happens with all that. But um, yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, The whole tenure process is, as as you know, it's kind of like a a very adventuresome adventure. And so um, I'm, uh, I'm, we'll see what happens, but, but I'm just about at the end of that, that line. So, um, so yeah, I don't know if that if that answers the question. I could probably yeah, talk about more. But. No, that's super. That's perfect. Um, and we're wishing you best of luck with with tenure. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and so Ken, same question. Um, we'd love to hear some about your your background, um, educational, anything that would give us a sense of how you wound up working on what you do. Yes, it's been a it's been a long journey. I got a degree in journalism from Widener University in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then at that point, I attended seminary and received my MDiv degree. That is the point at which I was first exposed to language study, uh, Greek and Hebrew, New Testament Greek and Hebrew. And then uh, I was in the ministry for 10 years after graduating from from seminary. I had some theological differences of opinion with my denomination after about a decade or so. And I decided to retool at that point and 
enter into an engineering degree. Now, before I left the ministry, however, I did take a number of seminars, graduate seminars at, at Bryn Mawr in their classics department. And I was really inspired on my dissertation subject, working with uh, Rick Hamilton at Bryn Mawr. And so I set that aside. Once I left the ministry, I set that, the classical studies aside, focused on engineering, and that lasted a quarter century. I worked for a, a uh, integration company, and we did programming and electrical design for uh, manufacturing. My particular client that I spent many projects on was General Mills. So in 2016, with a view to retirement from engineering, I began taking uh, courses in uh, graduate courses at, at Villanova. And I was at Villanova for about three years, completed my degree there, applied to Edinburgh, and was accepted at Edinburgh University, and also accepted at Oxford. And it, you don't turn down Oxford, I guess. <laughs> uh, and so I, uh, right before I graduated from Villanova, uh, Valentina Donardis, who's the director of the uh, classical studies program. And that happens to be our connection between uh, Chad and myself was uh, he had taken a course with Valentina. And uh, she said, we, we have a uh, Koine Greek course coming up, graduate course for theology students this summer. I'd like to bring you on as adjunct faculty. I was very surprised by that. I've enjoyed my experience. I've taught a number of courses over the last year or so. At the same time, uh, headed off to the UK. Uh, my wife and I have a flat there. We happen to be, right now, we happen to be in, in Pennsylvania because of the COVID. Uh, and we have plans to return either for the the January term or the March term, I'll be sitting for some exams uh, in June. Uh, at the moment, though, I've my I've completed one year there at, at Oxford, during which time I was able to get uh, the first segment of my dissertation completed. That's in draft form and been submitted. So we came home in March, and since we've been home, I've actually been working on a project related to the Ubersius inscription, and that focuses on the, the associated hagiography. Uh, the hagiography has a, an extensive manuscript tradition, and it falls into three distinct narrative traditions. And the last critical text that was published for that hagiography was in 1911 uh, by Theo Neeson. And there has been no English translation of all three of those narrative traditions. So the project I've been working on the last six months is a critical text which takes into consideration six manuscripts for the narrative one, 
single manuscript for narrative two, and then 15 manuscripts for the, uh, for the narrative three. I've had to collect those from museums around the world. My wife is my uh, international purchasing agent, uh, <laughs> making the bank transfers to Moscow and Amsterdam and, and Paris and uh, the Vatican. Uh, and so the transcription, the critical texts are actually complete at this point. And so are the translations. Uh, my co-author for this is a Roman historian, Pamela Johnston, uh, and her husband was actually our proofreader for the the, the Quaresmius uh, Latin. Uh, she's a professor in uh, Fresno Pacific out in California. So uh-huh. Pamela is my co-author. We have we submitted a uh, an inquiry to uh, Oxford Press. Oxford Early Christian Texts, and we got a very enthusiastic response, and they want us to submit a formal proposal for that. So that should be going off uh, the beginning of this week. So we're eager to see um, how that turns out. Great. That's wonderful. Um, Well, best of luck to both of you guys with those major milestones you're, you're barreling towards in the next week or so. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Um, So I'd love to turn to Chorismius now. I'm sorry if I'm butchering his name. Um, That's okay. There's differences of opinion. I struggled a little bit about what to call a guy because his name is Quaresmio, but but he signs as Chorismius, and so I don't know. But we went went with the Latin. We, Um, We actually have affectionately referred to him as Q, for the last two years. <laughs> That's great. Um, so I was wondering if um, one or you know both of you can tag team um, to explain how you came to edit and translate Jerusalem Afflicted. Sure. I don't know if, if, if you want me to start, Ken, or... Yes, please, Chad. Yes, it was that it, it started, you were the first to be inspired for this. All right. Um, thanks. So I... Um, I'm working, and I'll, we'll probably talk about this later on. But I'm I've been working for a great number of years on uh, the the subject of the the politics and and cultural um, resonance of Jerusalem as an idea and as a set of narratives in the early modern Iberian context for you know since my dissertation um, and in the the in the the, uh, the course of my work on that topic, um, I was always familiar with this with this name, Quaresmius. He's a he's a really um, a sort of towering figure in early modern narratives of historiography of the of the Holy Land. Um, he's a Franciscan who um, who wrote this gargantuan two volume history that is widely cited by lots of folks that work on this on this field. Um, so I, I knew the guy, but I I had never heard of this particular text, this sermon that we edited, um, until I found a reference to it in some I don't some some obscure place, like a nineteenth century bibliography or something. I don't remember even what it what it, what it was that that caught my attention, but I was um, 
I mean, and it's also in, it's, it's in Wikipedia, honestly, if you look at the, the old Wikipedia entrance, the, the entry now has, has us in there, but, uh, but it used to just have a reference to the title, um, which, uh, which is a, it's a really not a, a well known text. It's very obscure. Um, and so I was really caught by the idea of this text. So the text is, and we'll get into this in, in, in depth, I'm sure, but it's a, it's a crusade sermon and, um, it's directed to Philip the fourth. And so I thought it was very pertinent to my work with Jerusalem and I really wanted to get my hands on it. And that, uh, desire to find this text, um, it took me a while to track it down and figure out where it was, but I eventually traced it to uh, what at the time appeared to be the only extant copy in the Biblioteca Ambrosiana in Milan. So I got a bunch of grants and flew off to Milan to um, to check it out. Um, I was able to transcribe the the entire thing in a very intense week of <laughs> of transcription uh, where I was basically just going when they opened the door uh, and they had, you know, one of those like amazing European coffee mis- dispenser mm-hmm. like machines or whatever. Like yeah. my ex- exclusive sustenance was just like nasty coffee out of the coffee machine <laughs> um, from like from when they opened until when they closed. Uh, and I managed to transcribe it. Um, Ken can testify to the fact that it was a pretty um, irreg- <laughs> uneven, let's say, transcription. I did my best. I did my, I did really my best. Um, there were some errors, but uh, I captured you know a bunch of the text, and it was a complete transcription um, despite some errors. But um, we found that the text was missing um, a key, a couple key pieces. There was there was uh, no title page, and there was also another uh, folio missing. So. It was a defective copy. It was pretty disappointing to discover that. But thankfully, um, after some more sleuthing around, um, I managed to trace another copy of it, which I believe is the only other copy still extant. I could be wrong about that. But um, there is a copy uh, in the National Library of Argentina. And I contacted them, and they were super generous with their time and... um, and incredibly, they, they, they produced a full PDF of the whole thing for us, and it was a complete copy. Um, so we were able to fill in the lacunae from the missing uh, material from the Ambrosiana copy. And, um, and then that's, that's it. So then once, we, once I had the thing in hand, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but my, my Latin isn't the greatest. I, I you know, I, I, I do what I can do, but, um, I, I really wanted to get uh, you know, a really reliable um, translation of this work. So I, read, I reached out to Valentina Donardis, who Ken mentioned earlier, and she put me in contact with Ken as somebody who would be a good, a good resource, as someone who knows uh, theology and also um, is a, a classics expert. And uh, I passed, passed these, these pages along to Ken, this is a little bit out of order because I didn't, we didn't find the Argentina copy until we were well into this project, but, mm-hmm. um, but Ken, um, Ken did a translation, a translation of the complete work. And then, um, once we had that, we, we were like, well, we've got this book now, let's make it a book. <laughs> Why not? Right. So that's, that's, um, because it, it is such a rare and unique and interesting text. So it, it seemed to us like very, um, pertinent for us to try to find a, a broader audience for it. Because up until now, really, the only way to read it was to go to Milan, which 
not like any, I mean, we all want to go to Milan, I'm sure, but <laughs> not something you can do every day. So, um, unfortunately, yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that's sort of the prehistory of, of the book. It was really just a product of, of my research for my, for my monograph. And in a way, this is really just a super extended footnote, um, to my monograph in, in a lot of senses. It's like, it, it's a, it's a fascinating text that's key to, to some parts of my argument in my monograph, but I didn't, um, I didn't know that this was going to become a full fledged study and edition of this rare sermon until, until once it, once Ken produced a translation and, and we read it and we're like, you know, this thing has got some, there's some things in here that are worth, <laughs> that are worth thinking about. So, um, so that's, that's the story. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's fabulous. Um, I actually, I have a follow-up question. So, um, continuing on, on that last thread that you were just exploring, you know, who, who do you think should be the audience for this? Who should be reading this sermon? You know, why edit it? Why dedicate so much time and effort to, you know, tracking down the two extant published, you know, uh, copies of it? Um, what's what's so special about it um no that's a really a really good question i i feel like the the audience there there are several possible audiences that i think that this book um is uh of potential interest to or for um the so I, I don't even know exactly how to, <laughs> there's a, there's a bunch. I'm going to make a list, let's say. Um, I think people that are interested in the historiography and in the history of the Crusades as a movement or as an idea, um, this is a very interesting and unique text because it's a rather late um, iteration of a genre of calling for crusade that uh, was pretty ossified early on in, in the, you know, the, the 12th, 13th centuries, 14th centuries, there's lots of crusade sermons, 15th century. Um, we don't have as many of these things in the 17th century. It, it feels very late. And it's in the sense, um, in, in that way that it's just, a, it's sort of an outlier, but also reflective of a tradition. I feel like it's very interesting. It's a very unique text. So if people, people that are interested in the crusades, um, in the history of, of holy war, Christian holy war, I think that this is a very interesting document that reflects a particular moment um, I, I also think that there's a, a sort of, um, a, a set of people who study the Holy Land more broadly, or that study the Franciscan presence in the Holy Land that will find this text interesting because, um, Corasmus is a really, as I said earlier, he's a very influential figure in that context. He's a, he's, um, he's someone who, who has been written a lot about, but this is a text of his that until now has been entirely unknown, even by people who are um, major scholars of, of Quaresmius or of, of Holy Franciscan Holy Land studies. Um, this is a text that, that I, in my research, have never seen a single citation, not a single word quoted from this book. Um, I've seen a few people allude to the existence of the title, but never any substantive engagement with this, this work who, which is by, like I said, this really important influential figure. So I, th- I feel like this really complements um, what we know about Quaresmius. Um, and it also is reflective of the ideology of the Franciscan presence in the Holy Land and what, it, what, what was going on in the early 17th century in those intellectual and spiritual circles. Um, there's also a, 
clearly like a, uh, a nucleus of interest around um, in, in this book that I think could, could be interesting to people that are more firmly anchored in the peninsular context and that are interested in the, the, the politics and culture of 17th century Spain, of the monarchy of Philip IV, of the connections between the Spanish crown and the religious orders um, and how um, religious discourse and religious ideas interacted with, with um, po- political and, and strategic policy matters. Um, there's a whole kind of element of this book that that, that Quaresmes as an author is trying to play on the sort of the geopolitics of Spain's place in the Eastern Mediterranean that is is very interesting. So, so that's another place where this could be of interest is is the the, the broader Mediterranean studies field, which is I'm sure as you know is like a is in a, a really important um, uh, field that's exploded in the last number of years um and especially interesting as a as a way of thinking outside of the national paradigms of um particular borders and instead of thinking of the sea as a as a as a space of very complicated exchange and dynamic fluid movements and all sorts of positionings and um really rich encounters and i think that this book reflects that as well there's a lot of players here that are involved that that show the the way that palestine in you know, circa 1626, was really at the heart of how um, Spanish and Venetian and Genoese and Ottoman and all sorts of other folks were were viewing their own their relationships as as polities and as as um, as groups. And there's a it's it's a it's a locus for it's a contact zone that and, and it's a very interesting problematic contact zone. And so I think that this book. Um, really reflects that, and it's and it's an interesting um, document in that sense too. So, I probably could continue finding other other audiences, but I feel like people that are Hispanists or Iberianists, people that are Mediterranean studies folks, or people that study the Holy Land or Palestine, um, in particularly in the early modern period, or Crusade scholars, probably could all find um, you know some some nuggets here of interest for, for their for their work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about how, um, as a field, early modern Iberian studies tends to think about, um, you know, and we'll get into the sort of relationship between crusading and and reconquest um, when I ask you guys about chapter two, I think it was. Yeah. Um, But it's certainly interesting to sort of track how some of that discourse moves through the Mediterranean, whereas I feel like we tend by this time period to talk mostly about how that gets moved into the, into the Americas. And so it was really fascinating to see that being moved East rather than West. Absolutely. No, I think that the, that we're probably getting thankfully more habituated to thinking about Al-Andalus as part of the Mediterranean. Um, And I, I feel like we still have that, you know, that Barbara Fuchs, the cleaving of Hispanism, Mm-hmm. moment of like 1492 we think east maybe more instinctively but after 1492 we really think west and i think that this book is a is a reminder of the fact that 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 doesn't really that doesn't really hold up as a as a functional it's not to say that people aren't thinking about the mediterranean after so that's a terrible way to characterize it um but i do feel like that there's something um more like global systemsy about the the eastward gaze of the empire after 
after 1492 that we sometimes forget. So I think that that's, that's a really important, and there's a, there's a book and I, oh my goodness, I can't remember now the author's name. Um, I should look this up, but uh, I should have had this in front of me, but there's a, there's a new, there's a new book that makes precisely that argument um, that the, um, that, that we should be, we should not be forgetting about the empire as an East facing, um, as an East facing project in the same period. Oh, I'll definitely have to get that reference from you. That sounds fascinating. Um, so just to um, back us up a little bit, zoom us out. Um, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit, of, you know, we've talked a little bit about Quaresmias as being a really prominent figure in the Franciscan order. You know, who was this guy? Why was he important? What was he doing giving a sermon in, in Jerusalem in 1626? Um, what's, what's the context? Sure. I don't know if I should keep plowing ahead, Ken, or if you want to. Oh, yeah, please, Chad. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, and, uh, you know, as we speak, I'm, I'm just checking checking for the reference because I, I, I cited the book recently, and I feel terrible that I can't remember what that reference was uh, off the top of my head. Um, anyway, um, Chrysmius is, um, as I mentioned before, I think that he's best known for his work as a um as a as an historian or as an historiographer of the christian presence in the biblical east in in palestine and and i feel like that is his 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 big claim to fame um there is uh the two volume the two volume work of his that that i mentioned earlier is um it's it's like a thousand pages in folio, uh, two columns, very small type. It's very large. It's a ma- It's an absolutely massive collection uh, that traces the the Christian presence in Palestine from you know from from the time of Christ or earlier uh, up until the 16th, 17th century. And Quaresmius's um, role as a sort of pretension as a universal historian of the of the christian presence in in the east is is something that he's it's what he's he's really known for um as we trace in the book a little bit because there isn't really a good biography of him um there it's it took us a little sleuthing as well to figure out some of this stuff because there's just not a lot of great sources on his life um but he 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 was ordered in um in Lodi in, in Italy. And he, um, he had a number of charges as, um, as a sort of emissary representing the church in, in both in the Vatican at the Vatican and also in, in Jerusalem and elsewhere in the, the broader, um, the, the Eastern Mediterranean. So he, he was in Syria and Egypt and he also went to Turkey. Um, he was in, um, he's in Jerusalem for a number of years where he held the the position of the effectively the head of the of the order in in the holy city. So, and at the at the time, the the Franciscan custody of the Holy Land, which is the body that was tasked by the Church with administering the Christian holy places on behalf of the Catholic Church, um, had a lot of authority as as a sort of um, like vice royalty of sorts of the of the papacy, um, so Quaresmius held the 
held this position and uh, as the head of the of, of the custody for for a few years, a couple of times, he was arrested at one point in or several points actually um, as it was imprisoned. Um, this is re- this is reflective of a lot. Lots of Franciscan sources in the period are um, are very emphatically um, anti Ottoman, <laughs> in particular, very very anti Muslim um, in general. Yeah, and often frame their their presence as a sort of um, as as being under the constant um, uh, persecution by the local authorities in Jerusalem. So um, his own experiences as as someone who was imprisoned are are captured in in lots of other texts as well. There's lots of texts that that capture the idea of, of Franciscans being thrown in jail or or having to pay exorbitant. Um, fees for for this or that and um so he, he's really reflective of that kind of mentality of someone's like a siege mentality of the franciscans in jerusalem of um running the holy places but in a in a in a hostile environment and so they're they're trying to position themselves both locally and also represent that experience to christian audiences in in europe um as a way of generating sympathy and as a way of also generating alms and also you know, political and economic and diplomatic support from specific um, crowns. So, um, in a lot of ways, Aquinas Mace does that sort of work. He he represents the custody in in his Horace historiography. He was also a literal representative of the custody in his in his own experiences. Um, he also went on some missionary trips to different uh, Christian communities in the in the Holy Land. Um, the Maronites in particular, and the Chaldeans. He he was um, an emissary from from Rome with an, an attempt to, in their in their language, reduce those groups to the Roman Church um, in a more direct way. Um, so there's a couple of texts that are also similarly not published and not studied that reflect those those travels of his. Um, and frankly, I haven't studied them, um, and so I can't really speak to their content. Um, Beyond knowing that they exist and that he he participated in that sort of missionary work, which is very interesting in in the broader context of this debate between um, what what the Christian presence in the East is about and whether it's something that should be waged on the on the grounds of conversion or uh, or violence, um, and that's a that's a debate that we see also played out in different ways throughout the history of Al Andalus, right? Like different different kinds of understandings of whether. Muslim and Jewish communities um, can be or should be integrated and converted in some sense assimilated into a broader Christian community or whether they need to be eradicated or expelled or what, in, in other ways, sort of like managed through the sword. Um, and Chris, yeah, in, in, is, in, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Chad, and this is, this is addressed by Corice Mias in the letter. Uh, absolutely. Where he talks about the uh, when he's addressing Philip about the fact that he has a responsibility as a civil leader and particularly as king and and as king of Jerusalem to exercise that authority. It's a it's a fairly lengthy argument in which Quarismius speaks in terms of an evolution of the church 
that the church has evolved from what he refers to as gentle beginnings, where there was persuasion through the gospel pointing to the cross, and he refers to the cross as wood. And then he says the church has evolved to the point where it's no longer wood, but it's the iron of the sword. And so he he obligates Philip to exercise that civil authority. However, at the same time, he's very careful to show Philip that you can't force people into the kingdom of God, that his civil responsibility is to clear opposition, or better stated, persecution, so that the church can thrive. So he's working along with the propagation of the gospel. He's working along with the church. And so this there, this issue that you're talking to is addressed in the letter itself. And it's a rather lengthy letter. We haven't talked about how long it is. The English translation is 35,000 words. This, this isn't a, a short email. <laughs> that, that's for sure. Yeah. No, and I, I think that that's, that's essential, Ken, that, that the, the, the way that this, this letter despite advocating for crusade, which it, it does in pretty un- unambiguous terms, it also um, is part of a broader negotiation in this whole period uh, between how to manage the frontiers between Islam and Christianity and whether the preferred method for that is is violence or, or through gentle persuasion or through some combination of those things. And I think that, I, yeah, I would agree. I think that he, he's he's not calling for like a genocidal eradication of Islam as much as a, a Christianizing of Palestine that will make a, able uh, to be a, a, a space for conversion, which is, a, it's, it's, still, it's no less co- coercive in a lot of senses, but it's definitely not. I think it's, I think that he's, um, he's complicated in that way. Um, so yeah, I think I agree with you there. Um, can you tell us a little bit, I think we've sort of, you've talked toward, um, some of the background of, um, why a friar was writing a letter or was first giving a sermon and then writing a letter to Philip IV of Spain to go crusading in 17th century Jerusalem. And, you know, for, for maybe some of the members of the audience who aren't quite as familiar with all of Spain's various holdings in the Mediterranean, in addition to those in, in the Americas and Africa, um, why, why would Philip IV care? Why should he care? What's the, what's the sort of um, geopolitical argument that Quaresmius is building this on? Because sort of offhandedly, if you don't know, um, all of the context that you guys give in in your book, this seems like a completely absurd thing to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really, I mean, that's that's what really struck me. I, I think that part, part of our, our, our opening chapters are, are, I think, kind of trying to manage the, manage the, the visceral, inst- the instinctive re- response to this is like, what are you talking about? Like the, where this is so out of left field feeling to 
to be to be calling for, to generally to be calling for crusade in that period it just feels so belated but also just generally <laughs> what what is the connection to Philip before it's very strange so um it's a great question Liz I think um and feel free to jump in at any time can too I I would say that the, probably the, the key ingredient to bear in mind here is that this letter is written in very full view and it's very explicit about this throughout the letter of the connections between the deep historical connections between the Spanish crown and the Franciscan custody of Lollingland in Jerusalem. So those are, and, and the, 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 the throne of the crown of Jerusalem as well, like the kingdom of Jerusalem, um, the crusading kingdom of Jerusalem as well. So um, in, uh, in the context of there's, there's a couple of different pieces there, but in the context of the, uh, the very protracted and, and drawn out Italian wars where France and, and Spain were, were vying over Italy. Um, and in particular, the kingdom of Naples and the two Sicilies, um, part of that, that, that crown, um, has to do with the, the, the legacy of that crown. Um, the, the patrimony of that crown has to do with claims to the throne of Jerusalem and also to the foundational activities of Robert of Anjou and Sancha of Mallorca, who were um, benefactors who purchased key properties that allowed the Franciscan custody to be established in the 14th century. So both of those claims seem to have little to do with Spain, but, um, and both of those claims being the King of Naples is the King of Jerusalem and the King of Naples is the uh, primary patron and benefactor of the Franciscan custody and the foundational, the, 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 the founder, the founding body of the, of the custody in, in that they negotiated the, the settlement that allowed the, the Franciscans to establish themselves in, in the Holy Land. So both of those things are tied to Naples. And when Spain uh, in the 15th century acquired Naples, they very gleefully took those claims to be part of Spanish or first Aragonese um, royal patrimony. And then later after the Catholic monarchs, that became sort of part and parcel of the Spanish crown's baggage of holdings. And so the Spanish crown uh, after 1510, which is when the formal investiture of that royal um, title with uh, Fernando um, it, it took place. From that point forward, Spain was able to point to the 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 crown of Jerusalem as part of this the crown of the, the, the monarchy, part of the the polycentric collection of global holdings that um, that we're all we all love and know or whatever you know that, that spans across the the, the globe in, the, in this period. Um, so, and, and along with that, also the benefactor sort of patronage um, connection. So, Quaresmus plays plays on that a lot because part of his argument really resides with or rests on this idea that you are the rightful, the only rightful sovereign of Jerusalem, and you are also the benefactor of the Franciscans who reside there. And additionally, the Spanish, uh, the, the King of Spain was. Um, was at some point associated with the order of 
the holy the knights of the holy sepulcher and he he makes a, a further claim that as as the sort of headmaster of the order of the knights of the holy sepulcher which is a debatable claim but um but as the head of that order you are also um on all these fronts you are you have a moral spiritual and also earthly duty obligation to undertake the 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 rescue or the of the the um the saving of the holy city from its current state of of uh, persecution and uh, and captivity under under muslim authority so that 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 claim that the call for crusade really rests on that idea that like if if someone is going to be undertaking a crusade to conquer jerusalem uh it's it's going to be the king of jerusalem and that king of jerusalem is philip the fourth um i i would i would note too that that claim itself feels often really jarringly out of out of touch with with the realities, the geopolitical realities of the 16th century and the 17th century. Um, nevertheless, I would I would insist that this is a part of narratives about what the Spanish crown is, um, and it has continued to be a part of those uh, of the language used to describe the Spanish crown's possessions up until the literal present day. So Felipe VI today is still king of Jerusalem. Um, if you look in the Boletín Oficial de Estado, which registers official acts of the government, um, there are still official acts um, relating to what is now called the um, the Obrapia, the, what's it called? Yeah, the something of the Obrapia, I forgot the, the, the full name of it. But Obrapia is part of the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And so basically, Spain's connections to Jerusalem and to Palestine um, in the 18th century, Car- uh, Carlos III, um, effectively institutionalized uh, the the sort of charitable and diplomatic and economic relationships between the crown and the Franciscans, and that soon became a part of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And obviously, under Franco, this was also like a, a very important thing. Um, and it continues to be, as I said, it continues to be reflected in the structure of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, although. There's there's been conscious debate about the tension between having an ostensibly secular government running something called the pious work of the holy places, um, la obra pia de los santos lugares. That's what it's called. Um, so the pious work of the holy places is still part of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and um, so there's some tension. There's some tension with the idea that you know it's a secular democracy, which is which is running something that's under that title. But um, the way it's framed in in the the bulletin is, is as a as a sort of nod to historical ties, and those historical ties themselves, as I just you know as I mentioned, they 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 look back to fourteenth fourteenth century Naples, and they also look even further back to eleventh century to the eleventh century conquest of Jerusalem under Godfrey of Bouillon, and those are um, those are explicitly evoked in documents stretching throughout this whole period that I've just enumerated up until. The 21st century. These are kinds of ideas that, you know, members of the Volks Party, for example, are not shy to point to because they're, they 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 gesture toward a, a very long and deep um, and proud tradition of Spain being sort of bastion of of militant Catholicism in you know for for centuries, a millennium even. So 
Um, so it's, it's a really important part of, of this sort of national understanding. But Quaresmius in, in the sermon, um, to, to turn back to the text, is, is really, really conscious of, of all of those geopolitical and economic ties that I've just mentioned. So Spain was very central central in funding the Franciscan activity in the holy places. And there's a lot of documents that are archival documents. You can consult at the custody in Jerusalem, where I did some archival research. Um, there's also stuff available in the, um, the Archivo, what do we call it? Archivo Histórico Nacional in Madrid. Um, there's a whole section in, in that archive as well that is dedicated to the to the holy places and to the to the orapia, and um, so yeah, documenting the the, the Spanish crown is, has has a really long tradition of financially supporting the um, the custody with both material um, support, like sending goods like oil and wine and clothing and vestments and um, objects of cult and you know chalices and um, and all the all the rest as well as um, funds. And so there's the, the financial piece as well as the political argument that that as rightful sovereign, thanks to a papally recognized investiture from 1510, the King of Spain is the guy who should be running the show in Jerusalem because it's like legally on multiple fronts, it belongs to him fundamentally, the, the physical place does. And so he, he really pulls on that argument a lot and, and it's a moral and, and spiritual argument as well. There's a, there's a moral um, obligation that these connections to the holy places that the king, the king has, they, they, they compel him to have to act because um, to, to not do so is to be derelict in his duty and there are moral consequences, spiritual consequences to, to not acting. That's one of the, one of, one of Christus's kind of key arguments. Yes, this is not, this is for potential readers. This is not a dry political treatise whatsoever. Uh, the it is a sermon, and it's a neatly crafted rhetorical work. Uh, at the very front end of the letter, uh, Quaresmius gives us the outline, and he uses the analogy, the popular analogy of the rope of three strands is difficult to break, and so. Those three strands he's referring to are the three parts of his argument. And so the first part of the letter is the dire uh, condition of Jerusalem as a woman in captivity. Let me say that, that at the very start of the letter, uh, Quaresmius adopts the female persona as Jerusalem herself and throughout the entirety of the letter speaks as Jerusalem, the woman in captivity, who is the queen, uh, the captive, the rape victim, uh, the highly educated uh, royalty of the East. But in that opening segment, and I think that, that that's, Part of my theory behind why that one folio, uh, Chad and I have talked a little bit about this, why, uh, why that folio was torn out, because that folio contains a very stirring description of Jerusalem 
as she was before captivity. And Corismius includes that because he believes that unless you know what Jerusalem was like, you really won't appreciate what it's become under in Muslim captivity. So the first part is to describe Jerusalem's plight. The second part is to describe the king's responsibility. And this this dovetails nicely with what Chad just described in that he sets out the fact that kings are God's agents and that uh, kings have a responsibility to exercise justice. So he starts off with a broad comment and then he moves on to say, well, if kings have a responsibility, the greatest king has an even more serious responsibility, and that's you, Philip. And then he goes on to say, the reason why you have ultimate responsibility for Jerusalem is because you are the king of Jerusalem. And in that respect, then, she personifies herself as his espouse. So he is, uh, she is the bride and he is the groom. And this is played out throughout the entire letter. And then the, the third division is the rewards that Philip will reap for executing a crusade. And that is the establishment of an eternal kingdom. And it, it has a, a somewhat of an eschatological uh, theme near the close. Uh, he quotes from, he actually draws his, his imagery from the book of Revelation, where he talks about the tree of life and its, its many fruits. So the reader shouldn't expect um, any, a, a political treatise. This is a, a sermon which interweaves um, a, a deep knowledge of crusade history, uh, of the theological issues behind crusade. He talks about a just war. Uh, he also has some very interesting sections. In fact, one-tenth of the letter speaks to the right of Jerusalem as a woman to speak uh, and the exceptional situations in which a woman, woman can break from what was the expected decorum uh, at the time. So d- that's just to give a, an, an overview of the, of the letter, that it's not an academic treatise. Yeah, the um, the metaphor of Jerusalem as a woman was so striking, um, and it seemed to, in some ways, I, you know, my first instinct was almost that it's it's playing on chivalric tropes as a way of you know demanding that Philip, um, you know, come to come to the rescue of like a damsel in distress. Is that, would you guys say that's an overreading or, or do you think that the, it, the female prophetic voice is working in another way? It has to be balanced against what, what Quaresmius does is to balance against that. He portrays Jerusalem as a highly educated, um, bold, uh, outspoken, uh, candid woman uh, who 
who is not just a weak damsel in distress. I think he balance, tries to balance those two uh, throughout the letter. Chad, do you have yeah, – why don't you comment I, I would, on it too? I, I would agree. I think that um, the the gender dynamic that's manipulated in, in the text with the – particularly the scenes of the description of Jerusalem's present captivity as different forms of sexual violence, which happens a lot, mm-hmm. I think are really – as a rhetorical move, I mean it's certainly – made to stimulate the the rage and the horror of the reader and or the listener in this case, because we'll get to this, but it's a sermon as well. Um, so it's, we have a written text of it, but it, um, ostensibly at least in some form was delivered as a sermon in the church of the Holy Sepulcher in 1626. So there's an, there's a whole affective um, sort of uh, emotional part to that appeal, which is that, there's a there's a you know a manipulation of the idea or not manipulation but using the idea of of the victimization of of a holy city as a woman being abused in different ways by by Muslim captors is um, is a key part of it. But I would also agree with Ken that there's there's a there's an interesting it, it does occupy like a bunch of the letter and I think that that Quaresmius goes out of his way to try to it, it make space for the idea that just because of one, the, the, this, this woman's present situation doesn't, doesn't mean that she's like a, she's a, I don't know, like a, a passive victim in, in, in so far as she has a powerful voice to advocate for herself throughout the letter. So there's a kind of like a gentleness to her, her own discourse that makes the, 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 um, the, 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 the victim savior dynamic it's still it's still there because he she depends on on Philip, but for for her for her you know releasing her from her captivity. But um, but Quesmius really goes out of his way with abundant scriptural documentation as well to justify the the fact that she's not just sitting there quiet. She she's very vocal. She's very articulate, and she's very forceful in advocating for herself and. Um, it's interesting because he really does sort of play like Ken suggested. Like I think that he plays with the idea that that sort of educated and forceful and agential, if you want um, female discourse is exceptional. Um, It's, and so he justifies it with scriptural documentation to make it legit, to legitimize why a woman should be so, so vocally demanding of of someone um and and should be so yeah so so visible and so passionate and it's, i mean passionate it gets us in a different spot but there's a i don't know if that makes sense i think that, that there's a way that that he explains her um her position as as exceptional in in, in yes, she, exactly. she's, a, she's a strong woman in 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 the very much to the point chad is is he 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 says that these are exceptional there are always ex- there are exceptions with in which circumstances a woman can be forthright like this, and then he goes on to give uh, biblical parallels. For instance, Esther, uh, Deborah, the prophetess, who were who are outspoken women. One of the undercurrents that we've been talking about Jerusalem personified. Part of the the thread that runs also through this three part. Uh, letter or or sermon 
is there's a, a psychological undercurrent um, directed at Philip. He moves through three phases with Philip. Uh, he, he first taught, he tries to stir up compassion or, or love. He moves into guilt and then he moves into ego or reward. So it's, it's the heart, the conscience, and the ego of Philip. And you see that, that Q stays on each of these psychological motivations in each of the three parts. You might see a little bit of overlap, but he's fairly consistent in how he approaches. In, in each of these sections, and maybe more than just at the end of each part, Quaresmius uh, has a strategy of breaking into a series of questions, interrogations, I would call them, or exclamations, which really break up uh, his, his more analytical, discursive segments. So it, it gives the reader a break as well. I, I wanted to add to you. Oh, sorry. No, so thanks. <laughs> just one last thing. Just I also wanted to say that this this characterization of of Jerusalem as a woman in in need in in many ways is reflective of a broader issue that is cuts across the whole text, which is that this is a this is a text deeply steeped in all sorts of traditions, and those traditions include not just biblical, patristic, um, and historic historical um, traditions relating to crusade, but also um, all of the all of the the baggage of of justifications of crusade from 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 the time of the crusades up to up to Christmas's moment, I think that he's really he's really steeped in those, and I think in a way that's unique in, among other authors advocating for crusade in the period, because there were others, but he he really does it using a language and a set of images and a set of ideas that that harken back to earlier. Um, earlier traditions. And one of those traditions that is not unique to Christmas is, is precisely this idea of manipulating the idea of, or, or using the idea of, of sexual violence and Jerusalem as a victim, as a woman who's being victimized. And that, that is something that's, that we see from the earliest, you know, from the council of Claremont um, on that, that famous um, urban um, calling for crusade at the council of Claremont, which is recorded in a handful of, um, not exactly contemporary, but shortly after um, sources from from 1095. Um, so, what, what I'm saying is that 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 structure or that trope itself is an essential part of how justifications for crusade had been going on for not just decades but centuries. And he's 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 uh, he exploits that tradition and takes it to I think some new places, but it's it's clearly drawing on a well established vehicle for moving through compassion and through guilt and also through um promises of reward and all other th- all sorts of other things Mo- moving people to want to up- take up the cross and uh and crusade um so it's it's a it's it's a stock it's a stock justification in lots of ways which, which also has um biblical resonances as well from like the book of isaiah etc so it's it's kind of like a I guess I'm saying it's not unique to Prismius. Um, it it it's unique in the sense that he he uses it with his own voice and and he gives it a new life. It's really proper to his moment, and he does things that are unique with it, especially through 
the relationship with the king of Spain as a sort of bridegroom and Jerusalem as the bride. I feel like the way that he plays that dynamic in particular is not something that you might have seen in earlier calls for crusade in quite the same way. And in the way that the Christmas uses it is um, as the structure for such a long extended piece is also, I think, unique. Like certainly in the Council of Claremont, that imagery is there, but you know, it's, it's, it's not something that lasts 35,000 words. And in this case, this, that's, that's the main sort of vehicle around which the whole thing is built. So it's a pretty powerful kind of, I don't know what the word is, vehicle for this sermon. So how does that compare? You actually, you um, answered the question that I had previously, um, but I'm curious, you know, so how does Quaresmius compare to his contemporaries that are talking about crusade? Um, because as you kind of argue in chapter one, you say, you know, we think that it's weird that somebody in the 17th century would be arguing for crusade. It's not actually that weird, but he's unique for, you know, a, a number of reasons. What are some of those reasons? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that m- most um, Hispanists or Iberianists that work on early modern stuff are at least somewhat familiar with the discourses of imperial messianism and the sort of like triumphalist discourse um, around the idea of the crown of Spain and prophecies that link to universal monarchy and the idea of a global Christendom uh, of one flock under one crown um, with its seat in Jerusalem. And that's an idea that's in Mary Tanner's book really well, you know, beautifully ex, uh, explored. And or even earlier, like Francis Yates um, has a chapter about that in the Estrella book. Um, and there's a lot, very, very, very lot about um, the sort of political messianism that was associated with the crown of Aragon. I think that also um, Milou's book on Columbus is a great example of this kind of thought. Um, Columbus himself was also very steeped in Franciscan messianism. And uh, I think that that idea that the king of Spain will uh, eradicate Islam, establish a universal monarchy in Jerusalem, that that end of time is very eschatological discourse is the frame through which most discussions of crusade and the conquest of Jerusalem take place in this period. Most of it is not the nitty gritty of actual (laughs) crusade proposals. It's much more, it's much more abstracted in, in it's not like it's any less potent or any less um, meaningful, but it's, it's very apocalyptic discourse. Um, And it's not that this text isn't either, but I feel like this text is moving in a direction that is more rooted in a set of rhetorical moves and biblical tradition and crusade tradition itself that many of these other messianic um, traditions don't engage with directly in the same, in quite the same way. Um, So there are, there are many, many, calls for crusade that we can find in in all sorts of different places in the period um in the in the form of prophecies um foretelling the future conquest of the holy city under the king of spain and they, and they show up in weird places too like in in anti-morisco polemics for example they're they're a pretty common trope um there are collections of 
vaticinios y pronósticos that in lots of different ways um, foretell the, the conquest of Jerusalem under the king of Spain. But I think that this is of a different order in that it's it's not foretelling a future conquest. It's it's calling on concrete action now. It's not saying that in the in the misty opposite of dawn, what the misty unknown future of the apocalypse, there will be this you know, tearing of the veil and this revelation moment where the king of Spain will have under his under his rule one flock and Islam will be eradicated. Um, it's a much more kind of nuts and boltsy um, logic, which is to say that now is the moment you you need to just get your shit together, pile up into some boats, sail to Palestine, and do this thing because it's your duty because you're the king. And I feel like that is a different a different sort of argument. Um, and there are other sources, and we can talk about this if you, if you want. I know we've already spoken quite a lot, but um, the, the this book includes an anthology of sources, and some of those sources gesture in different directions. So we, we did include a source that's more in this like eschatological apocalyptic tradition. We also have another source that's contemporary, slightly earlier, but sort of contemporary with Christmas. That's a much more also much more pragmatic. Um, appeal for a crusade. And so what, what I think is unique about this, this particular sermon and also that other one that I just mentioned that's more pragmatic is that they're, they don't feel like there's a whole common set of stock tropes that are used in those eschatological imperial messianism kind of things. And those are practically absent from here. And that's unique in, in, in I think more than one way. One of the reasons why it's surprising maybe is that so much of that stuff comes out of intellectual circles of franciscans and from the 15th 14th 15th 16th centuries there's a lot of activity in the franciscan order that's in that direction and from cordesmus is a franciscan and he's certainly aware of that stuff but he doesn't build his argument around that stuff in the way that some of his contemporaries do um so that's i think that's one of the things that's probably most unique about it is that it just doesn't feel like your run-of-the-mill the king of spain is going to be the universal emperor if that makes sense. So yeah, yeah I mean, it was. I was really struck by a quote on page sixty-two um, where you guys wrote, "Like the Babylonian monarch, Philip is this supreme universal potentate with authority over man and beast alike." And I was just really struck by the fact that you know that's not actually so far off from the historical reality of early modern Spain. I mean, particularly in the pre-1640 period, right? I mean, they have the entire continent of South America. They've taken over, you know, all of Portugal's possessions in in Africa and Asia. You know, so it's... The Philippines, the... Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and so the idea that, that somebody is saying, just conquer Jerusalem while you're at it. Like, yeah, it, it so, sounds I mean, it, insane it, now, but, like, when you think about it in terms of this sort of global expanse of Spain you know, 15 years before Portugal can get its act together to, to regain its independence. Like, (laughs) it's it's not totally far out there. Well, I think the part of the, like the really, really uh, traditional, and I could be, I I, I don't know if, if, if everyone would agree with me with this, but I feel like a lot of, a lot of accounts of this sort of discourse um, are very on board with associating that, that same argument that you just laid out that like, listen, we, we own the world already. 
this is part and parcel of just us claiming a destiny that's ours. Um, and that, that messy, that, that messianism that is especially, you know, Los Reyes Católicos and Carlos V and Felipe II up to like Lepanto, it's really easy to see it. It's all over the place. After, after Lepanto and especially during the, like the Pax Hispanica, when Spain started to capitulate in some sense and sign peace treaties with enemies where holy war and, you know, fighting Protestants and all of that was like less of a defining feature because there was, there were a peace with England and France and the Dutch for, for, for a decade. And uh, it felt a little bit different then I think um, that, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of, part of the motivation for, for the need to do things like expel the moriscos. But, um, but that, that kind of, that, that moment of the early 17th century is um, it, it's in some accounts feels less steeped in the kind of idealism of, of the earlier periods. And it might also be because, you know, the, 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 the crown was in constant state of like basically bankruptcy and that there were all sorts of um, domestic and international problems that weren't being managed very well. And like the war in Flanders wasn't going so hot later on. And, you know, all those kinds of things that make it harder to imagine the idealism as being something realistic or, or whatever. But I feel like that there, this is a document that shows that that sort of, that sort of breathless hoping for some kind of world changing event wasn't that, that was as much a part of, you know, 1620s, 1630s as, as, as it was in the 1520s and 1530s in lots of ways. It's, it's a different moment. There's different geopolitical circumstances. Certainly the crown was, you know, largely bankrupt and like lots of things were going not so great all the time, but, but, but what you said is, is true. It's, it's still a global, there's still a sort of global presence that was, that made part of Quaresme's argument is precisely that, that like who else is better positioned than the King of Spain to do this work? You you have, you have a global dominion that really makes this a no brainer. You've got a huge fleet. You've got a huge bunch of soldiers. Like you should be the man to do this thing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you guys have been super generous with your time, and I'd love to just keep talking to you for ages about this because this was really, really fascinating. Um, just to give you one last chance, are there any really big conclusions you want our audience to walk away with about the importance of Quaresmias for Spain, for the idea of crusade, for crusader um, sermons, um, final, final closing argument? For what makes yeah, this text Chad, so cool. Chad, I, I think one thing that Chad, you should speak to is the title of the title of the book that we're talking about pushing a serious plea for crusade into the 17th century. I think that's part of what we're trying to put forward here. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an argument about just the, the chronology of how we understand um, understand crusade and, and we address this in the opening chapters a little bit but I, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, that most of us right now living in you know 2020 um, are aware of the ways that the idea of crusade continues to, to be a part of the fabric of social and political movements 
and how people understand their identity now and how they use use the idea of crusade to justify uh, acts of violence or the idea of violence or the idea of exclusion or control. Um, and I think that that, um, I, I mean, it, the most evident thing I'm thinking of right now is the, the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville that ended in the death of, of a woman and the injuring of, of several others. And at that rally, there were, there were very notably a great number of crusade symbols on display. And so what's the connection between crusade uh, imagery and white nationalism? I mean, plenty of, plenty of really smart people have written on that. Um, but my point with that is that it, it suggests that this idea is is still with us the idea of crusade and the idea of crusade as, as a as a place for understanding someone what one's identity or a group's identity is something that's really really important so i think that pushing pushing the as ken said pushing then the crusade a serious a serious plea for crusade as a legitimate not just as a sort of you know aspirational um maybe uh, massaging of the, the monarch's ego as a way to say, oh, you're, you know, you're entitled to this thing, and, and you're you're the great, you're the ruler of the world, but but to genuinely be asking the king of Spain to undertake an actual crusade, it's it does really feel out of place for 1626, um, considering the economics and social and political conditions of the moment. Um, but that said, it 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 is something that was legitimately part of of that moment, and and for for reasons that are not just the strategic reasons that are that are in Cortes's mind, I think. I think that he really. I don't pretend to get into the into the mind of the author or whatever, but I, I do feel like that there's a sincerity to the sermon that's a little bit striking as well. That it really does feel that he's not. It it, it feels it feels like uh, as as a member of the order immersed in this worldview, he he was very committed to the idea that this this was a good idea. I, I, that's my impression, and I, I invite others to maybe disagree with me or whatever. But it does feel to me that there's a, there's something to be said for that, and so that fact on its own is, I think, significant, and it's it's worth pausing and thinking about what like what does it mean in the 17th century to be calling for an actual crusade, and um, what does it mean later on, even you know even today when people are talking about crusade or what is it what is the imagery of crusade you do you know that the same the same cross the same crusading symbols that were used at charlottesville are also on you know the, the cover the title page that we recovered from buenos aires has the same the cross potent the jerusalem cross on it that that was also on flags in, in charlottesville so um something to think about is it's just what what it what does that mean when when we when we tie identities to to the idea of crusade <laughs> Um, but I think that this te- this text in in general is just something that that um, that asks us and te- really calls on us to to rethink the, those chronologies and those those yeah that, that timeline because it, it's it's late and it and it and it begs the question um, what what is what is crusade doing whenever crusade appears and in this in this particular moment there's lots of specifics to think about here as there always are but I think that that. The, the idea of crusade in, in the 17th century is something that is it shouldn't be just dismissed out of hand as a kind of like wide, wild, irrational, crazy thing. I think that there's something something more interesting happens if we take it seriously, if, that, if, that, if that's what I'm saying. I think yeah, I think, yeah. 
Yeah, I think you guys make a super compelling argument that that Quaresmas isn't, you know, isn't a Quixote. He's not just this sort of figure um, wildly dreaming out of his own time and trying to imagine something that isn't there. You know, I think you make a very compelling argument that it's it is a a relevant set of you know metaphors. It's a relevant discourse to be employed in his time and and to argue for what that means and take it seriously, both in the 17th century. And then, as you say, um, even today, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, yeah. So just to close, I know, um, we've been here for a while, but do either of you want to tell our audience about any projects that you're working on now? You, you should tell about your, your book, Ken. Yeah, I think I mentioned that earlier that right now I'm working on the uh, critical edition uh, of the uh, hagiography narrative sets for um, St. Abersius. Um, it's based, the narrative itself is based on a second century inscription. It's considered the most famous Christian inscription. It's a 22 line uh, epigraph that is. Uh, been part partially recovered. It's in uh, in Rome, in the Vatican Museum. Uh, however, the 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 complete text is recorded in the hagiography, and it's uh, conveyed in the manuscript tradition. So, uh, I've, we're in the final stages of that, and we've submitted to um, Oxford Press. They they're interested in it. Uh, we have a formal proposal going out this week. So it's a it's the it's a critical edition based on a number of, of manuscripts that I've had to transcribe over the last six months, and and also um, translations of those three narrative traditions. Great, that sounds awesome. Um, Chad, do you want to give a, a brief shout out for the current book project? Sure, I'll I'll do that. I also want to take one more stab at the closing. Uh, of the other of the other thing too, I just want to say that this this project was really the fruit of a collaborative um, a collaborative endeavor, and this is the kind of work that I think that that you've advocated for as well, Liz. Um, and I think that it's a really important thing to recognize that there is something generative and productive and useful in in breaking down the silos that we all live in in the academy and. Um, being willing to work across disciplinary boundaries and um, that there's kinds of work that can't happen that if, if they're not collaborative and that this project, I, I'm not a classicist and I don't do Latin and Ken is an Iberianist and doesn't do early modern. And, and so we, we really bolt and he does theology and I don't. And so I feel, I feel like those kinds of overlaps and dialogue are essential. And I feel like the co-authored nature of this book, and, and, and this is not just me trying to make a closing argument for why people should give me tenure. But I feel like this, I feel like the, I feel like this book is, you know, in the hierarchy of, of projects, it's it's a study and it, it, it has monography elements, but it's also an addition and additions are are considered in some sense lower in the, in the ranking. And then there's also the element of it being co-authored. And I feel like that that committees and, and the field in general looks with some suspicion, both at additions and at collaborative work. But I feel like 
that should change. I feel like that there's a there's a space where this kind of work is essential and that there's there's places where we can't do things if we don't do this kind of work. We can't I could not have done this work without collaborating with Kent. Like neither of us could have done this alone. So I think that this is a a good I guess there's an argument here to be made for for why this is this is a valuable just a valuable methodology or a valuable kind of space for doing things is through collaboration. Um, well, and I yeah. think that your your scholarship really speaks for itself on that front. The you know just the absolute depth of scholarship that the book shows throughout, I think, is a really strong argument for for reconsidering how humanities departments and and scholars in general look on work like this because it takes a massive amount of erudition to execute something like this so thank you um congratulations to you guys for that thanks and i guess what one like my my one quick plug my 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 not my monograph is um my my excuse is covid i will i'm gonna go with that uh uh, I really hope to have it done by spring, but it's not quite done. I'm, I'm aiming now for early winter. But um, my monograph is is a broader study of the place of Jerusalem in the early modern invention of ideas of Spain and Spanishness. So it's uh, of course means has a place there, but it's a broader it's a broader study of how the narrative that Spain possesses Jerusalem, Spain owns Jerusalem was used in different ways and by different authors for different reasons at different moments. And I look at a great variety of not just um, genres and sort of textual um, forms, but also material culture as well. So um, I mentioned earlier vestments and ultra cloths and things like that. Those are, those are part of the story as, as well as, you know, numismatics and coins and heraldry and also epic poems and theater uh, travel accounts of travel, um, accounting ledgers, and shipping logs, and all sorts of other documents that are not what we would call maybe literature. Um, despite the fact that I'm a sort of you know, trained as a literature scholar, but I've 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 had, made a hard drift into the not <laughs> literature lo- zone. Um, but I feel like that's essential to make the argument that the book is making, which is that through the idea that Spain owns Jerusalem, really key ideas about what Jeru- what Spain is itself. Um, were articulated and that those ideas also persisted far beyond the early modern period when those things first found a voice. So, um, I mean, especially I mentioned earlier Franco, that's obvious, um, but there's lots of other places where um, there's a kind of constant drumbeat of the idea that Spain owns Jerusalem and not very many scholars have talked about that. Um, so this is a project that will make the argument that we should be talking about that, that there's a, there's a really important um argument to be made around the claim that Spain owns Jerusalem or Spain possesses Jerusalem or through Spain's protection, Jerusalem is able to exist or et cetera. So that's, that's the monograph. And I would also like to make a really quick, quick plug for another book that I'm working on, which is the uses and abuses of early modern Spanish culture, which is a collection of articles that should hopefully be coming out in not too distant future. Um, which will be exploring some of these ideas of how the past gets refashioned or reimagined or used for different reasons at different times. And so I think that it's relevant to the Jerusalem discussion for the reasons we've said earlier, just that I think that this continues to be a part of contemporary dialogue in an important way that um, is just one example of how the, the, the Iberian past is 
um, is resonant in moments that are, you know, post medieval or post early modern. And that the politics of time around that are really, really interesting and, and problematic and, and fun. So there's a, there's going to be a collection of articles about that stuff coming out in, uh, I don't know. I don't know when, one of these times. So those are my two plugs. Thank you so much. Um, thank you guys so much for your time and for, um, writing a really wonderful and editing a really wonderful text. Um, I really enjoyed getting to talk to you both. So take care. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. 